0: Well, good evening. I do hope you take the opportunity this week to speak to Jeff, uh, to speak to Shige from Japan, to speak to Celia, to speak to some of our Tongan friends. Uh, I, was, I pushed pretty hard uh, with the ANCON team to make sure that we could get all these guests to come along this week because I figured it was a great way that we could serve you by bringing these people who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, who have different experiences, who are serving God in different places in the world, bring them to you, so that you might actually chat with them and find out what is God doing around the world, how might I be part of this. This is a great opportunity and they're right here all week for you. So please make every effort, Uh, grab them for a meal Some of their phone numbers are there in the booklet. Text them to say, love to meet up for a chat. We can organise it that way. So please, make use of that opportunity this week as much as you can. Let's get into God's word together. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the great privilege it is to be able to come together as your people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to sing your praises, to bring you our prayers, to hear what you're doing around around the world and to dig into your word. And we pray, Father, that as we read and reflect upon your scriptures now, that your word might live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name and the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay, now this morning we looked at the first 2,000 years or so of the history of God's people up until the end of the Old Testament period. And at the end of that period, things weren't looking so great for God's old covenant people. By the time of the first century AD, the Israelites were in the promised land of Canaan, but they were under Roman rule, Roman occupation. It was hardly the great heights that God had promised. Where was this promised new king? Where was this promised kingdom that he'd established? Where was this new covenant? Where was this promised spirit of God in the hearts of his people? It was clear to most Israelites that things were not as they should be. The question was, what should we do about it? And that takes us into the messy world of theological politics in first century Israel. I'm on page 17 of your booklet there. Israel we have a problem. The problem is that the promised kingdom of God has not arrived. What's the solution? Well, there are at least four different approaches within first century Judaism. You can see them there on your page. There were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. The Sadducees were the ruling elite of the day in Judaism. For them, the key in this time of crisis was to maintain the temple, So their approach was to cut a deal with the Roman authorities so that they could keep the temple, the priesthood and the sacrifices, keep the whole system going. Mind you, to cut a deal with the pagan authorities, to many other people that seemed like a sellout. But that was the Sadducees. The Pharisees had a different approach. For them the key in this time of crisis was to keep the Torah, keep the Old Testament, hence the sort of book thing that they've got there. They were fanatical about it. Purity through keeping the law. That was their cry. Purity through keeping the law. That's the solution. There were other approaches though as well. The Essenes were a Jewish community that decided that the Israelite nation had become so corrupted that it was time to start over again. So they removed themselves from mainstream society, took themselves out to the desert and started over. You might have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were copies of the Jewish scriptures and other writings that were made by the Qumran community who were Essenes. Their catch cry, if you like, was, Run away! Hence the pair of sneakers. Run away! Start again! That was their solution to the crisis. Finally, there was another approach in Judaism day that was the zealots. The zealots were into revolution. The way to resolve the crisis, according to them, was violent revolution. Take up your sword and kick out the Roman occupiers and establish God's promised kingdom by force. Their catch cry? No king, but Yahweh. No king, but Yahweh. This is the messy world of first century theological politics in Judaism. And it's into this maelstrom of competing ideas that Jesus of Nazareth appears. Jesus' mission, then, you see the heading there, to national Israel, the Old Covenant people of God. When Jesus begins his public ministry, he has an astounding message. He announces that the promised kingdom of God is finally about to arrive. You can see it there in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 in your notes, point 2a on page 17. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven is just another way of saying the kingdom of God. Three things to note about what Jesus says here. First, this was Jesus' central message. He came announcing the arrival of the long-promised kingdom. The kingdom or rule of God. He's saying that all of God's promises are about to be fulfilled. And all of Jesus' teaching revolves around this central announcement that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's at hand. It's here. It's now. And flowing from that, the second thing to note is that it's not surprising, this was an incredibly popular message. So if Jesus was walking around proclaiming the kingdom of God is about to be established in the context of the first century Judaism, it's not surprising when we read in the Gospels that there were large crowds following him. Maybe this is the time, maybe this is the guy, all those promises, maybe now. But the third thing to notice is that the centre of Jesus' announcement about the kingdom was a call to national Israel to repent. That is, to turn around, to come back to God. Jesus' announcement wasn't, hey, good times are around the corner for everyone. Jesus' announcement demanded a response from God's people. If you want to share in the blessings of the kingdom, you need to get ready. You need to repent. You need to turn back to God and get back on track. Jesus' announcement was good news for those who repented. Now once we've got Jesus' central message right, that's Jesus' message, we can start to then see how his deeds and his teaching fit around this. So first of all, his deeds. If we look at Jesus' deeds as they're recorded in the Gospels for us in the New Testament, they provide us, I think, with little windows, little windows into the coming kingdom. So think for a moment about the healings and the miracles that he did. They give us a bit of a glimpse, I think, of the perfection of creation that the kingdom of God will bring about. When God's rule is finally and completely established, there will be no more sickness. There'll be no more disease. There'll be no more death. Even the spiritual forces of evil will be destroyed when the kingdom finally comes. And that's what Jesus' miracles were showing us. So, for example, in Matthew chapter twelve, verse twenty eight, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Jesus does other things, though, too, that shed light onto life in the kingdom. For example, he forgives sins, say Mark chapter 2. Sometimes miss the significance, I think, of Jesus announcing the forgiveness of sins. Why was Israel, national Israel, in such a bad spot? Why had the promises of God not been fulfilled? It was because of Israel's hard heart, because of Israel's sin. So when Jesus comes on the scene and authoritatively announces the forgiveness of sins, that's a big deal. That's a key moment. That's why the kingdom of God is at hand, because through Jesus, God is now holding out forgiveness to his wayward and stubborn people if only they will listen to the message and repent. And the fact that Jesus went around eating with sinners and outcasts makes the same point. Forgiveness is now on offer. Those who'd been excluded can now be welcomed back in fellowship. Jesus eating with the sinners and outcasts was a powerful way of communicating this offer of fellowship and forgiveness for everyone who would repent. So that's some of Jesus' deeds. If we move on to Jesus' teaching, we can see this it fits as well with this central appeal to repent because of the coming kingdom. In his teaching, Jesus was often calling national Israel to faithfulness to the old covenant. For example, there on your page, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, do you remember which group the Pharisees were? The Pharisees and the scribes were those who were serious about the Torah, keeping the law, purity through the law was their cry. But Jesus' critique of them is that these guys are not serious enough. They keep little bits of the law, but they've neglected the central parts, like loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So Jesus was calling national Israel to be faithful to this covenant that God has established. So that's Jesus' message. Repent, because the kingdom of God has come, and it's reflected in his deeds and his teaching. And you might have picked it up already, but implicit in Jesus' message is a twofold ministry. A twofold ministry. So let's move on to Jesus' ministry. Now to think about Jesus' ministry, let's actually go back to John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 to 12, John the Baptist announces the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, and this is what he says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So maybe you can see there the two aspects to the Messiah's ministry, according to John the Baptist. He will divide the wheat from the chaff. The chaff is the husk, the seed husk, that you separate from the seed itself through the threshing process. He's going to divide then the wheat from the chaff, and then the chaff will be destroyed whilst the wheat is gathered. And John the Baptist described it there in verse 11 as the Messiah would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, baptism with the Holy Spirit, I think, parallels the gathering, gathering of the wheat. Baptizing with fire, I think, is a picture of destruction. You'll notice there in verse 12, he says, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the Messiah will come baptizing with the Holy Spirit, gathering the wheat, and baptize with fire, burning up the chaff it's a ministry that divides that destroys and gathers and you can see both of these aspects in Jesus ministries so Jesus announces there on your page judgment on unrepentant Israel I'll leave you to read the Mark 11 passage there on your page This is where Jesus announces and enacts judgment on the temple in Jerusalem. Remember the temple, right? The temple is the the great symbol of God's presence among his people. Why does Jesus, the Messiah, announce judgment on the temple? Well, it's because, like the fig tree in the passage there in Mark 11, the fig tree produced no figs, The temple, the center of Israelite life, had produced no fruit. No fruit in keeping with repentance. So now, like the chaff, there's only destruction. There's only the baptism of fire for national Israel. So Jesus comes announcing this judgment on unrepentant Israel, but also, like the wheat, Jesus gathers a new community. Now, I'm at point four on page 18. The gathering of a new community. Now, this is a key text... So we're going to park here for a little while. This is Matthew 16, 13 to 21. So let me read it out to you. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The uh, Son of Man was a Jesus title for himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist... Others, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now that really is an amazing thing, just stopping there for a moment, that Peter's saying, isn't it? That he's saying, I think that you, Jesus, you are the promised Messiah the Christ, the one who our, old, our, our Bible, our, our Old Testament is written about. We think you're him. It's a very big call, right? It's much more than saying you're a prophet, like Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It's a big call to make. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. That is Jesus saying, you got it right. With God's help, you got it right. And then here comes the key bit. Jesus continues, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. Now, in Greek, the name Peter is Petros, which means a rock, right? That's what Peter's name means. It just means rock. Jesus is about to make a play now on, Jesus, on Peter's name. He's saying, you're Rocky. You're Rocky. And now he continues... And on this rock, this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now let's focus in there on verse 18. You are Peter, you are Rocky, and on this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, my gathering. Key question here is, what is the rock to which jesus refers is the rock peter himself the man is he the rock i don't think so i don't think that's actually what jesus is saying he's not pointing the finger into peter's just saying, and on this rock pointing at peter the key thing peter has just done is acknowledge jesus as the messiah right that was verse 15 you're the messiah the christ the son of the living god That acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus then goes on to commend in verse 16, and his identity as the Messiah is what Jesus immediately focuses on when you get down to verse 20 and 21. The whole passage is about Jesus' identity as the Messiah. That's the rock on which Jesus is building his church. The acknowledgement that Jesus is this Messiah. Jesus points at Peter and says, Just like your name, you are rocky. And on this rock of your confession, that acknowledgement that I am the Messiah, I will build my church. Now, that tells us something incredibly important about church. At the heart of being church is our acknowledgement, our, our confession of who Jesus is what draws us together, what makes us Jesus' church, is that when Jesus asks us, but who do you say I am? We reply with one voice, as Peter did. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. That common confession... That Jesus is the Messiah. That's what separates Jesus' church from every other gathering of people that you could have. That confession, you are the Messiah, is what separates the Christian church from Judaism. It's the dividing line between God's old covenant people and his new church, his new covenant church. And the central importance of this confession of who Jesus is, it's so central to our identity as God's church that that's been reflected through the ages in what Christians do when we gather together, when we come together as the church. It's part of the reason, actually, that Christians have always said creeds, statements of faith through which we declare again our belief that, yes, this indeed is who Jesus is. And so we say it together because that's actually what forms us together as his new covenant community. The church you know when someone is baptized as a christian it's it's usually always accompanied by a declara- actually it is always accompanied by a declaration of faith in jesus as christ and lord and this text here tells you why because jesus is building his church around this faith-filled confession of who he is Now, the fact that we believe Jesus is this Messiah ought to come out in all sorts of different ways in our meeting together as his people. The fact that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's what draws us together, that should be reflected in our prayers when we pray together. It should be reflected in our songs. It should be reflected in what's said from the front as well as what we say actually to each other. But it's a shame, actually, that we have abandoned That sort of language in our gathering together. When was the last time you went to church and actually said a statement of faith? Now, we do it in all sorts of ways. We often do it these days in song, I realise. But there is something to be said, actually, for just... Who do you say I am? I wonder if someone came into your church gathering, actually, and listened to what was going on and looked... Would they pick up on the fact that at the very center, holding it all together, is who you think Jesus is? Would they think it's all because they believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, that they're here? Or would they say, well, I've come and I've, I've seen what they do and I think the reason they're coming together is because they like each other's company. Or if they looked at what you did, would they say, I think the reason they're coming to come is because they get some sort of buzz out of this thing they call worship? Or would they say, well, it seems that they come together because they like hearing the Bible taught? Or would they say, oh, it seems they come together because they say God's doing something amazing amongst them by the Holy Spirit? Now, I hope all those things are actually true of your gatherings as God's people. But none of them are the centre. None of them define who we are as the church. Jesus isn't building his church on the rock of buzzing worship. Jesus isn't building his church on the rock of 25-minute expository preaching. Jesus is building his church on the rock of this confession of who Jesus is. By, by God the Father's grace, we know who he is. Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God. Now, I've got a bit of ahead of myself here. At this point in Jesus' ministry, as it's recorded for us here in the Gospels, Jesus actually wasn't talking about you or me. He was only talking to Israelites. We've talked about Jesus' message and his ministry, but at this point, Jesus' message and his ministry were both directed almost solely to national Israel. So you can see the heading at the bottom of page 18, Jesus' focus. Jesus' focus really was national Israel, though sometimes with a hint of something more. So Matthew chapter 15 verse 24, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus' message of repentance, his announcement that the kingdom of God was coming, his ministry of dividing and gathering, his, all of that was directed just to national Israel. He was gathering a new community around himself at this point in his ministry from national Israel, who would be his church. So what we have here really then in the ministry of Jesus is a a new refining of the nation of Israel. Jesus dividing the wheat from the chaff within national Israel. He's calling them to repent, gathering those together in Israel who acknowledge that he's the Messiah, the promised king, who would bring in the rule of God. So that's Jesus' ministry to national Israel. But as we read there in Matthew 16, central to Jesus' vocation as the Messiah was that he was going to be rejected by the Jewish leadership. He'd be killed and indeed raised to life. And it's through his death and his resurrection that Jesus brings a radical change to the people of God. Because what he does here is he actually brings to an end the old covenant and he brings in the new covenant. So I'm now on page 19. Page 19. So let's think about Jesus' death and his resurrection, which were the very focus of Jesus' entire earthly ministry. All of it was building towards his death and his resurrection. And think about what his death and resurrection mean for both the old covenant and the new covenant. So first of all, Jesus' death and the death of the old covenant. What was going on at Jesus' death? Have a look there at how Luke describes it in Luke 23, 44 to 46. Luke says, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus crying with a loud voice said, Father into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this he breathed his last. You notice the the things that Luke identifies here associating with our Lord's death. First of all, notice that we have darkness over the whole land, verse 44, and followed in verse 46 by the death of God's Son. Now, when have these two events been linked before? Darkness over the land followed by a death. It was back in the Exodus. See, before God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he performed a series of ten signs. The ninth sign was darkness over the whole land. The last sign was the death of every firstborn. They were signs of judgment on the Egyptians. Or more precisely, they were signs of judgment on everyone who refused to repent and acknowledge the one true living God. And now here it is, it's happening again. Darkness over the whole land, followed by death of the sun. Except this time the land isn't Egypt, is it? Do you get the horror of this? This time the land is Israel. Judgment coming on the nation of Israel. And wedged between the darkness and Jesus' death, the temple curtain is torn in two. Now, the temple curtain was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, which God had decreed to be his dwelling place amongst the Israelites. separates that innermost section of the the temple from, from the rest of the temple. And I think wedged between these two signs of judgment, of the darkness and the death, when the temple curtain tears from top to bottom in two, I think that's a sign that God is leaving the building. God is saying... This show is over. I'm out of here. My presence is no longer with you. I think the tearing of the temple curtain in this context in Luke's gospel is a sign of a terrible judgment of God on his people. Why? Well, because of their hard heartedness, because of their stubbornness. You can see how far the Israelites have wandered from God and the fact that they actually have just killed his son or are about to. That's how far the Israelites had wandered from their God. They were killing the Messiah that he had sent for them to be their saviour and king. So if you look at uh, John 19, verses 14 and 15, which is there on your page, Pilate said to the Jews, Here is your king, pointing at Jesus. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but the emperor. Once again, God's people were not siding with God, they were siding with the pagan nations, in this case the Romans around them. They wanted Caesar as their king not Yahweh, and not Yahweh's Messiah, Jesus. So they kill Jesus. Jesus' death really is the depth of how far God's people have gone against him. It's as low as they can go. And with it, God says, okay, game over. The old covenant is no more. So Jesus' death brings with it the death of the old covenant, and yet Jesus' death is astoundingly the beginning of the new covenant. This is what Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he died. I'm reading from Luke chapter 22, 19 to 20. Then Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus speaking about his death, right? He's talking about his body, his blood. He's speaking about his death, and he says his death will establish, will bring in the long-awaited-for, promised new covenant. He's saying it's, it's, it's going to come in with my death. So as you can see there on the diagram, at the bottom of page 19, Jesus' death on the cross simultaneously ends the old covenant and it begins the new. And a result of that change, the identity of the people of God changes. It switches from the old covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, to the new covenant people of God, Jesus' church, gathered around him who acknowledge him as God's Messiah. Now I'm going to leave aside the question at the top of page 20, which is really asking about what's the relationship between these two covenants. If you're interested in that, you can ask me about it at question time. I want to jump down to point C, which is about a third of the way down page 20. What is the significance then of Jesus' resurrection in all this? Well, Jesus' resurrection brings with it the life of the new covenant. So it's not just Jesus' death that's relevant here to the beginning of the New Covenant. Jesus' resurrection is vital to this picture as well. Jesus' resurrection life is life under the New Covenant. Jesus' death establishes the New Covenant and Jesus' resurrection is the New Covenant life. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that Jesus' resurrection was more than just a physical transformation. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans 6... When Jesus was raised, he was raised to a new life with God the Father, a life free from the power and the penalty of sin. Have a look there on your page at Romans 6:10 and 11. The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus you've got to get your head around this, right? Jesus' death was not just a death for sins, which it was. It was also a death to sin. A death that ended sin's rule over all those who are in Jesus by faith. And so those who are in Jesus by faith now share in his resurrection life, a life that's lived not to sin, but a life that's now lived to God. If you're a follower of Jesus... You've already started this resurrection life with Jesus. You're still waiting for your new resurrection body, since Jesus is the only one who's received that already. But the inward spiritual resurrection has already taken place, according to the Apostle Paul here. You've been raised with Christ. You are a new creation in Jesus. The same spirit with which the Father raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit is already living in you. That's the blessing of the new covenant. This is new covenant life in Jesus. But actually, Jesus' resurrection points to the fact that the new covenant kingdom of God is not like the old covenant kingdom of God. Jesus was very clear on this. You can see there on your page, Jesus' response in John 18, verse 36, when being questioned by Pontius Pilate. Pilate, understandably, was very anxious to work out whether this supposed King Jesus was really a king. Is he trying to set up some sort of rival empire to Caesar? And Jesus answered, verse 36 of John 18, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Now, you remember the old covenant nation of Israel? That was very much an earthly kingdom, wasn't it? It was a political entity. It was its own nation. The new covenant church of Jesus is not an earthly kingdom. We're not trying to establish God's kingdom on earth through the church. The church is not meant to be an alternative state. The church is in the world, but fundamentally not of the world. You you see the way the writer to the Hebrews put it in uh, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. And he helpfully for us contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant. He contrasts the old covenant gathering at Mount Sinai with the new covenant church gathering. Have a look at what he says. Speaking to Christians, he says, You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them, right? You remember all that stuff from this morning when the Israelites were there at Mount Zion. He says, you've not come to that sort of situation. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Festal just means celebratory, you know, a festival. And to the assembly of the firstborn. That word assembly is literally just the word church, right? Ecclesia. You've come to the church of the firstborn, this, who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, you've got a lot of key ideas in that little passage, but the question I want to ask you to think about from this passage is this. Where is the church? Where is the church? Well, according to this passage, the church is in heaven. Right? It's not a physical thing that you can touch. The gathering of Jesus is at the heavenly Mount Zion, not the earthly Mount Sinai. Now, I need to clarify that just a little, though. Unfortunately, most of the time people speak of heaven, they automatically think of the place you go when you die. That's not actually exactly how the New Testament uses the word. The vision of the future that the New Testament promises is not actually heaven when we die, the vision of the New Testament is a new heaven and a new earth. Moreover, it's not we go to heaven. That's not the hope. The final outcome for which we wait in the New Testament again and again is when God's promises come from heaven to us. So Jesus is going to return, right, from heaven. The new Jerusalem in Revelation 20 descends from heaven so what is heaven heaven is the present unseen divine reality heaven is the present unseen divine reality it's where Jesus is right now in his resurrection body at the right hand of God. It's where God's will is done. You know the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's where those who have already died in Christ await Christ's return and their physical resurrection. And this is the amazing thing that the New Testament says is, and yet somehow, through my union to Jesus by faith... We are present participants in that heavenly gathering. When I gather with my fellow believers on a Sunday morning, I really am participating in a heavenly as well as an earthly reality. Jesus is present with us as we gather at the church I attend and the church you attend. Jesus is really present with us by his Spirit. We're not a shadow of the heavenly church. We're an outpost of the heavenly church. An outpost of the present, mostly unseen, divine reality that is the gathering of Jesus' heavenly church. So the final aspect to note here about Jesus bringing an end to the old covenant but a start to the new is that the new covenant has brought with it an expanded focus. You can see there in the diagram, and we noted it earlier actually, Jesus' ministry before his death and resurrection was focused almost exclusively just on national Israel. You can see there from Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus said to his disciples at this point in his ministry, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel that was in his earthly ministry before his death and resurrection. Just go to the Israelites. Whereas after his death and resurrection, and this inauguration of the new covenant in his death, suddenly it doesn't matter where you're from. So in Matthew chapter 28, 23 chapters later, Jesus instructs his disciples a little bit differently. He says, "'All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So now under the new covenant, the church which Jesus has established is open to people from all nations, a very significant change of focus. Okay, so that's the end of part A of this talk, which was meant to be looking at the mission of Jesus the Messiah and what he's achieved, his, his establishment of the new covenant church. What remains to be done from here is to trace out what happened next. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to stand up and stretch your legs, and then we're going to sit down. 30 seconds. We're counting. All right, take a seat. Okay, let's take a seat. Let's get back on the way. We're going to power on through this last bit. So, over the page, page 21, you can see there the outcome of Jesus' ministry. The outcome of Jesus' ministry, a new people of God. A couple of years ago in the EU public meetings, we uh, preached through the book of Acts, and it was a... It, I mean, I loved doing it. I don't know what you thought, but I had a great time. The book of Acts is such a wonderful story. An amazing story of how God takes this church that Jesus establishes around himself and grows it magnificently, astoundingly, in those early decades. If you haven't ever sat down and just read it right through, like, a, like, like the... Like the story in sense of a historical story that Luke intended it to be read as. You know, just sit down and read it, do yourself a favour these holidays and be blown away again by just how astounding is God's work through his church in those early decades. Well, the book of Acts traces this growth of Jesus' church, starting with Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And I've mapped out the stages there for you on page 21, though I'm going to leave you to read the passages later. You can see there from the dot points how the Lord grew his church over those decades. Initially, there was a great influx of Israelites. So initially, the church was based almost solely just in Jerusalem, and it consisted almost entirely of converted Jews, like the first disciples. Jews who'd come to faith and put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah. They've grabbed hold of this rock this confession of who Jesus is. But then by the time you get to Acts 10 and 11, the Gentiles then begin to be included, not as people who first become Jews, but they get included into this new covenant people of God as Gentiles who've trusted in Jesus as their king. So even though Jesus had said they were to make disciples of all the nations uh, right there after his resurrection... It seems that it took the Jewish believers a long time to get around to going, oh, right, you really meant that, right? We're we're really meant to go out to all the nations and bring them in. Really? Okay. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, you'll see God has to intervene a heck of a lot in chapters 10 and 11 to convince Peter to actually go and proclaim the gospel to this Gentile Cornelius. And uh, you can see the picture up there. God has to reveal it in a vision of this all this unclean food, right? Food from the, the old testament laws that was unclean had to keep coming down, and God had, himself had to say to Peter, Eat it. And Peter goes, No way, I'm I'm on your case. I know you're trying to trick me. <laughs> God, three times God says, Eat it. it. Until eventually sort of it clicks with Peter going. You know, you can see the cogs sort are of gradually turning. Hang on, let's think about this. And he eventually puts it all together by God's help. And so you see, the Gentiles are now included by putting their faith in Jesus uh, into this new covenant community, the church. But then that generates a backlash, it seems. As the Gentiles start to flock into the church, that generates a backla- backlash amongst some of the Jews who have not yet accepted Jesus. See, if the Gentiles are now being included in this church of Jesus, well, that can't be right. And so some Jews start to want to have nothing to do with this church of Jesus. So then there's this hardening amongst the unconverted Israelites. In fact, there's a lot of persecution of of these new Christians from the unbelieving Jews. And the Apostle Paul actually was one of them, wasn't he? He was leading the charge against Jesus' church until he himself was confronted with the risen Jesus. So there's this hardening amongst the unconverted Israelites, and yet, as Paul himself shows, there is still hope for national Israel. Not that national Israel would ever again become the people of God. That's old covenant thinking, and that those days are gone. The hope for national Israel is that they might each turn to Jesus, the Messiah God had sent for them, And so, in that way, be included into the new covenant people of God, the Church of Jesus. And that is the hope that is still held out today for the Jews. If they turn to Jesus, the Messiah who God has sent for them, then they can be saved. If only they will put their faith in him. But what about since then? What's been the story of the new covenant Church of God since then, after those first couple of decades? So over the page, part C, the unfinished story since then. I don't know if this is true of you, but often we seem to think that after the first century and the events of the New Testament, the next thing that sort of happened was you. There's just sort of a big gap often, isn't there? At the end of the New Testament, and then God brought you into the world. (laughs) Seamless transition. Now, of course, that's ridiculous, right? There's been 2,000 years of Christian history in between. And not just history, actually. There's been 2,000 years of sustained, continuous reflection on what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ, reflection on these scriptures, 2,000 years of theological thought about this truth. And of course, the Scriptures themselves are what remain authoritative in all that reflection. If we're really going to be evangelicals who believe the supreme authority of the Scriptures in all matters of faith and conduct, then all our historicizing, all our theologizing, all of that is going to have to be subservient to the Scriptures themselves. But also, you know, we would be fools to think that nothing of any consequence has happened in the last 2,000 years. Yeah, you know, you've got your Bible, what more do you need? You'd just be a little bit stupid to think that your church experience today has absolutely nothing to do with the last 2,000 years of Christian history. Whether for good or for ill, the way you do church today, when you turn up, to be gathered with God's other people around Jesus, that is heavily influenced by what's gone on over the last 2,000 years for good or for ill so what am I going to try and do? In these last 10 minutes I'm going to try and cover 2,000 years of church history (laughs) now what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and show you the shape this is you know, from a person who's never studied history at university so it's bound to be good for all the science and engineers. <laughs> and the economists, what do they know? <laughs> okay, so here we go. You ready? Here's the diagram you get to draw. Okay. No, that's not a picture of the three sisters. Okay. Okay. So, the first 300 years. For the first 300 years, the Christian church was a minority. It was often a persecuted movement. The Christians were regarded as heretics by the Jews, because they weren't keeping the old covenant law. And they were regarded as pagans by most others, because they didn't have lots of idols. And at different times, the Christians were persecuted by both groups. But then in 312 AD, something astounding happened. In 312, the Roman emperor, Constantine, became a Christian. And then in the following year, in 313 AD, he and a counterpart in the eastern part of the empire issued what's known as the Edict of Milan, the Edict of Milan, which proclaimed toleration within the Roman Empire for Christians and all other religions. And further to that, it actually proclaimed that all the property that had been confiscated from Christians was now to be returned to them. So suddenly, it was safe to be a Christian in the empire. This was a very significant moment. And in fact, within just 70 years... Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire. So in 380 AD, there was the Edict of Thessalonica, which proclaimed Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, the next 700 years, <laughs> what a stupid thing to say, the next 700 years, but the next 700 years were years of expansion and and growing division, right, expansion and growing division. So by 500 AD, the Christian church had spread right around the Mediterranean and across to India. When did Christianity hit Malta, Jeff? It's there in the Book of Acts. That's pretty early, right? By 500 AD, it had spread right around the Mediterranean and even down to India. By 1000 AD, Christianity had spread right across what we now know as Russia. It was established in China, albeit small, and it made it down to the, our part of the world. It made it down to Southeast Asia by the year 1000 AD. And yet at the same time, there was this growing division amongst the church, a, divi- a growing divide between what was known as the Western Church, which was speaking Latin, and the Eastern Church, which was speaking Greek. There were political, cultural, theological tensions between this Western and Eastern churches. For example, how much authority did the Western Pope in Rome have over the Eastern churches? Should you have leavened bread, like bread with yeast in it, when you're celebrating the Lord's Supper or not? That was a massive issue. Um, Did the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father alone or come to us from the Father and the Son The growing tension that had been going on for centuries finally came to breaking point in 1054 AD. What's known as the Great Schism. That's spelt S C H I S M. (laughs) 1054 AD. This is where the Eastern Church, what we now know as the Orthodox Church, you know, the Russian Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox where the Eastern Church formally separated from the Western Roman Church and they still remain separate today. Some would say the biggest division that has happened in Christian history, but I'm not sure about that. Fast forward now to the uh, 1500s and we get the next big split. This is the Protestant Reformation, which saw a whole bunch of national churches break away from the Roman Catholic Church. It was a protesting movement, hence Protestant, right? Right? Originally, it wasn't trying to break away from the Roman Church, but try to reform it. Um, And 1517, I've put there on the screen, because that was the year that Martin Luther published his 95 Theses. It was prompted by all sorts of excesses and abuses that were happening within the Roman Catholic Church, which had obscured the Christian Gospel. And there was a corresponding desire within many to get back to the Christian Scriptures, to recapture the original truths of the Gospel, and reform Jesus' Church in line with the teaching of Scripture. But the attempt to reform the Roman Church uh, was largely unsuccessful, and so in the end, various national churches formally severed ties with the Roman Catholic Church. So in Germany, you had the Lutheran Church. In Switzerland, you had the establishment of the Reformed Church. In Scotland, you had the Presbyterian Church. In uh, England, you had the establishment of the Anglican Church. These national churches broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and established their own Protestant what we would say, denomination. And that's just a few of them. So fast forward again to the 20th century and we have an explosion of denominations within Protestantism. In particular, in many places, there's been now a severing of this connection between church and state. So it's no longer one Protestant denomination within a country. Once upon a time, it was likely, if you were a Protestant living in Germany, you were a Lutheran. But now you might be a Baptist or you might be an Anglican. Denominations are no longer within geographical boundaries. And we've seen the rise of the charismatic and Pentecostal movements as well within Protestantism and a massive growth of independent, non-denominational churches or the free church movement. In fact, according to the statistics in the world today, there are 215 million Orthodox Christians. There are 1 billion and 57 million, I don't know if I pronounce it. 1 billion and 57 million Roman Catholics and 806 million Protestants. Now, do every one of those, I mean, this is the, the dangerous statistics, do every one of those individuals have a personal commitment confession that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Tragically, probably no. So are they all actually part of Jesus' church? Probably, tragically, no. Because we know what defines the church. This confession of who Jesus is. But across the world today, the missiologists reckon we've got 38 thousand christian denominations which is a few mind you all of that even if all of those people are believers in jesus christ that is still only one third of the world's population there is a heck of a long way to go and so what happens next what happens from here Well, the story's not finished, is it? The next stage of the story of Jesus' church, it's up to us, under God. What happens next is up to us, under God. You know, no one in this room was part of this church, Jesus' church, a hundred years ago. None of us. Let alone right back there at the beginning. And in a hundred years from now, it's unlikely that any of us will still be gathering together as part of God's earthly church. This is our time. This is our moment. What happens now, under God, is up to us. It's up to you. So what are we going to do? Well, that's what we're going to explore over the next couple of nights. What are we going to do as God's church? Okay, that's the end of me. What we're going to do, though, is um, because that history that I've just sort of portrayed for you is so woefully, woefully schematic, let's be as, (laughs) as kind to me as we can... Uh, We've got a little video to show you, which is going to sort of try to give you a little bit more flesh on those very scanty bones, and this is uh, going to try to give a little bit more detail to the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. So watch and enjoy.